Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's going on here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. That's awesome. You know, and the great takeaway I, I got from hearing her share her story is this idea that God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us. He uses family, he'll use our religion, he'll use our circumstance, and he'll even use our pain as a means of, of pursuing us. God loves you more than you could even begin to comprehend. Uh, you're on his heart, you're on his mind. I believe that so strongly that if you were the only person in the world to redeem, Jesus would have gone to the cross just for you. You matter that much to God. And don't ever let anyone, and especially don't ever let the enemy sell you the lie that you are not important, that you do not matter because you do. And it's incredible how that God will use circumstances in our life. He pursues us. And to show you our value, not just to God, but to the enemy. (laughs) Did you know the enemy is pursuing you as well? You read John 10.10, the Bible says that Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And then in that same verse, it says, but the enemy, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. In fact, in Psalm 18, in the fifth verse, the Bible talks about being pursued, get this, uh, by the hounds of hell. That sounds scary, doesn't it? (laughs) You're being pursued by the hounds of hell. When the English poet read that verse, it inspired him to write an incredible song, a poem rather, Francis Thompson. He wrote this poem, and get the title of it, The Hound of Heaven. <laughs> In other words, he just turned it. He said, yeah, there may be hounds of hell after you, but there's the hound of heaven that's after you as well. The Holy Spirit of God is loving you, reaching out to you, trying to use the circumstances of his life uh, to touch and affect you. And again, I just say as we go into our talk this morning, God often uses the painful experiences of our life to communicate with us. The great C.S. Lewis said, God will whisper to us in pleasure. God will speak to us in our conscience. But get this, he shouts to us in our pain. Have you ever heard God shouting at you in your pain? You ever have the doctor say, I've done all I can do, you need to pray. (laughs) And you go, oh my God, are we down to that? (laughs) And suddenly you have this revelation, you have this reality that God will use the painful experiences of my life and yours, broken relationships, broken health, the loss of a loved one, the, the, the loss and the brokenness of a dream, the betrayal of someone. He uses all of those things in our life as he pursues us. I had someone tell me one time, Bill, I don't think I would have ever looked up if I had not hit bottom. <laughs> and he realized that is the good news about the bad news. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, if your right arm offends you, cut it off. You're better to go into heaven with one than into hell with two. He said, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. You're better to go into heaven with one than into hell with two. Now, what did he mean by that? Is God kind of a sovereign sadist that takes pleasure in our pain? Not at all. Jesus was using this as an extreme illustration to simply say this. If it takes pain, if it takes difficulty, if it takes sorrow to bring you to the end of yourself where you will finally trust Jesus, God is far more just to allow the pain in your life than to let you just go merrily on your way out into eternity. 
I wonder how many people I'm talking to this morning or how many people will be watching us online that uh, are hearing God shout to them in their pain. That you're going through a difficult time, a hard experience of life, and, and God just, where he was at once seeming to be far away, now seems to be very near. You're praying more than you've ever prayed before now. You're, you're, you're committed to pursuing him more than you've ever been committed to pursuing him simply out of this idea that pain is driving me to a place in my life where I know I need God. There were some studies done of how people respond to pain, how people respond to sorrow. It was a means of trying to gauge or to monitor how people were doing. In fact, the title of my message this morning is how pain monitors me. And as they were trying to discern, a doctor by the name of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she did a, a study that's been widely accepted in psychiatry and in psychology as well, where she identified, after studying thousands of people, she identified certain stages of life that people reach when they are processing and they're dealing with sorrow and with pain. She said the first stage that a person gets to is called denial denial. I can't believe this is happening. I, this can't be happening to me. I can't believe this is happening to my loved one. It can't be happening to them. And, and it's almost as though when you hear terrible news, it's like all of a sudden your whole body just goes numb. You, you almost cannot process what you've heard. This is so terrible and so overwhelming, your mind is on overload. And so for the next appointment, you have to take someone with you because you know you're not going to hear most of what the doctor is going to say to you. So someone else is there and they're helping you comprehend and understand because you're just in this stage of, of, of denial. It's, it's just like, I can't believe this is happening. She then went on to identify the next logical step a person goes through after denial is anger. They become mad. This isn't fair, this isn't right. Why this, why me, why now? This isn't fair. God, you're not fair. And as we've talked about many times in the series, this is where the train jumps the track for a lot of people in their church experience. You get into that situation, now all of a sudden it just seems like, you know, God has just picked you out to pick on you. And now this thing that has happened in your life just seems to be so unfair. And so it is a natural thing to experience anger. That's why I've told you before, I'll say again this morning, that's okay to feel those feelings. In fact, I would encourage you not to repress those feelings. If you're mad, be mad. Have you ever prayed a mad prayer? <laughs> I don't mean mad in the sense of crazy, I mean mad in the sense of anger. Have you ever just prayed an uh, uh, angry prayer? Uh, then, if you're not, then, then if you hadn't, then let me encourage you to pray some angry prayers. Every now and then you just need to fire one off at heaven. God can take it. If he couldn't handle it, he'd just take, he'd take you out. <laughs> That upset me, now get on up here to the big house. <laughs> I'm just suggesting you he can handle angry prayers. There's nothing wrong with praying, and I pointed out a few weeks ago in the message how some of the best people in the Bible were angry with God at seasons in their life. And so when Dr. Ross is trying to identify stages, she said it's natural to be angry at your circumstance. So there's denial, there's anger. The next is bargaining, bartering. 
God, if you'll let this happen, here's what I'll do. Oh, God, if you'll get me out of this, you know, I'll, I'll change my ways. I remember my second cousin was riding in the back of a dune buggy on my uncle's place down in Baja years ago. And the, my dad was in there. And my dad, my, my cousin, he was his first cousin. And she always liked to tell these dirty jokes to my dad because he was a pastor. <laughs> and I was riding along because I was trying to increase my repertoire for school. <laughs> So she was, she was telling this joke. My uncle's driving the dune buggy. We're bouncing over these buggies, these, these sand dunes down there. And all of a sudden, man, we, come, we came up. We thought we were going to turn the thing over. And she said, oh, dear God, I know why this is happening. I'm telling a bad joke to this preacher, and I shouldn't be doing that. Oh, God, please forgive me. So she had this made deal. We were just laughing. And she's like, you know. And all of a sudden, we smoothed out. We start going down the ditch. She looked at my dad. She goes, you know, Johnny, I don't think God would mind if I finished that story. <laughs> but we barter with God. We bargain him. We say, you know, God, if you just, oh man, I'll clean it up. I won't tell another bad job. I'll just, God, give me another chance. I won't do this anymore. And we, we bargain. It's, it's part of the way we are handling the things that we're going through. She said the fourth thing that happens is depression. Depression. And let me say this about depression. Some people deal with this as it's ongoing, it's constant, consistent in their life. And if you're one of those people that just consistently and continuously deal with depression, let me encourage you to talk to a, a medical professional, talk to someone that can help you, that has the skills to help you navigate through that. Sometimes depression is a physiological thing that needs to be addressed, but the type of depression I'm talking about, and I think the type of depression she was dealing with here, is simply a depression that is, it, you, you might term it this way, it's anger turned inward. It's when your anger now has turned inward. You've gone through the progression of denial and, and, and you've had anger and you've bargained and bartered and it didn't seem like you've moved God to do anything. And so the next step is you just kind of turn that in on you. You start beating yourself up. You know one of the big problems with beating yourself up is this, you don't know when you've had enough. <laughs> when you start beating yourself up, you don't know when you've had enough. You don't know when to stop. And so people turn that anger in on themselves. And then she said the next step is beginning to get healthy. And she says, she calls it acceptance. Not agreement, but acceptance. It's when you get to that point where you say to yourself, it is what it is. I can't change it. If I could, I would. I don't have the power to reverse this. If I could, I would. I've been mad at the one who has the power. He could, but he didn't. So now, this is it. I'm going to accept this, and I'm going to move on through this. It's what this series is about. It's getting through and growing through what you're going through. I talked about two types of pain that we endure. And again, I, I say this isn't a clinical definition, but it's a practical one. There's a type of pain I described as an injury, right? An injury. Maybe a sports injury, or maybe you did something crazy or risky. Maybe you took a chance and you got hurt. And so in that, you had an injury, and after a period of time, the injury healed, and now what's left is a scar or a limp or your shoulder doesn't quite work right. You've got something you can point to and say, this is a result of an injury. Now I'm through it, I, I'm on the other side of it, but I, I have a, a scar, I have a limp. 
I have a, a, an issue associated with that. Maybe a broken relationship and you were injured and hurt and now you're through it and you're stronger on the other side of it, but you still have a scar, a little scar on your heart. There's still something there that will be there because of the injury that you sustained. So there's an injury. And then there's a second thing that I talked about. It's a wound, a wound. It goes deeper than the injury. A wound is something that never heals. A wound is something that you sustain or you endure or you go through that just never gets well. It's a wound. And I illustrated it and I'll do again this weekend by some families in our church who've lost a child. And when you go through that terrible loss, it is something that even though you get years on the other side of it, it's still a wound. You don't talk to them very long and peel back too many layers of their heart and you find the emotion is still there. As I told you, the pastor that I use is an illustration whose seven-year-old was killed by a drunk driver and he in his 80s could not talk about it without weeping about it. And he said concerning that experience, he said there are some valleys in life you walk through that you just don't get out of. It's a wound. Some of you guys have those. And so what we try to do is we learn how to cope, right? Sometimes we bounce through those, those levels of denial and anger and depression and, and, and trying to get to acceptance and, and bargaining again. So sometimes we, we, we bounce all around the scale, but the reality of it is we, we know that it is what it is and it's, it's not gonna get better. And so we have to learn how to get through this and, and grow through this this thing that we're going through. And this morning, just for a few moments before we go home, I I wanna point out a passage in James chapter one that's helped me and I hope it'll help you. James was writing, remember James is a half brother of Jesus. James did not come to faith in Christ. He did not believe his brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection. In fact, there are times in James' life he thought Jesus was crazy. You have a brother you think might be crazy? No, he might be watching. (laughs) I'm just saying that uh, James thought Jesus was nuts. He says he's claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, He's crazy. And so James was skeptical. Not only was he skeptical because he could not accept that his brother Jesus was the Messiah, but he was skeptical because he saw how flaky some of the followers of Jesus were. Remember that person who said, The greatest argument for Christianity is a Christian. And the greatest argument against Christianity is a Christian. (laughs) And James had seen some of the inconsistency and the hypocrisy of the people who followed after his brother. And listen, it wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that James says, I'm convinced, I'm in. And so he became a dedicated follower. He refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus. He was absolutely committed to the death of preaching about Jesus to as many people as who, who would listen. And the people in James, in his little book that he's writing to and he's talking about are people who were in pain. In fact, look in James chapter one, look at verse one. He says, I'm writing to these Jewish believers who are, see the word scattered, diaspora. It's the idea of being persecuted. They're being scattered. They're being persecuted. Not for something they did that was wrong. 
Sometimes I think in religious contexts, we always associate bad things with bad behavior. And sometimes that works. Stupid is as stupid does. You know, sometimes that happens. So, sometimes there are bad consequences with bad behavior, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who had collectively or people who had even individually done anything to bring about this pain. These people were being persecuted because of their faith. They just believed Jesus was who he said he was, and that was a threat. It was a threat to religious people because they wanted to keep you in a system of rules and rituals, and and they wanted to keep you enslaved to that. So the religious people hated on him. It was a threat to Rome and the military of that day because anyone who swore an allegiance to anyone other than Caesar could be guilty of treason. So when you have these Christ followers that come along and they say, it's not my religion, it's my relationship to Jesus and he is my Lord, you offended everybody. (laughs) The religious, the military of the day, and so to try to stop this, they persecuted them. And the Bible says the result is they were scattered. Someone described it as like hitting a, a campfire with a broom. You just spread embers everywhere. And all they did was spread the church and the gospel everywhere by trying to uh, scatter them. But they're scattered. He says to them, greetings. (laughs) Man, when you're going through a hard time, you you, you look for somebody that's got good news for you. Greetings. I I got something good for you, right? Greetings. He says, count it joy. Note now, when you fall into various trials. It's interesting the phrasing of that, and we'll look at it in a moment in a little more detail, but most of us count it joy on the way out of trials, not on the way in. How many of you ever said, thank God, it looks like this is gonna be an awful week? (laughs) How many of you ever said, oh, this is so wonderful, the kids are acting terrible, thank you, God? Oh, we're not getting along, and we're having a debate with the mate, thank you, God, this looks like this is gonna be rough. I missed out on the promotion. Thank you, God, you're so good. They're gonna be downsizing. I'm like, oh, it's getting better, God. Thank you, you're so awesome. No, most of us, we thank God on the way out. Thank God that's over. Thank God I've got behind that, I'm behind that now. But my point is, he's saying, you do this on the way in. Here's why, knowing that the testing The trying of your faith is going to produce something in your life. Remember I said you don't go through painful experiences and come out on the other side the same? You don't. This pain you're going through is going to do something positive for you. It's going to produce patience. And we'll see it in a minute. So let patience have its work. Don't fight it. Go with the flow. God's in control, that rhyme. In other words, just say, God, you're God, I'm not. I'm gonna kind of go with this thing. And he said, so that you may be perfect, it's the idea of being mature and complete, lacking nothing. God said, I'm trying to equip you to go out into a world where you're not needy. You don't need anything. You don't need someone else. You don't need emotional support. You don't, you're not needy. You've got everything. You are self-sufficient in your relationship with God. But he said, to get you there is a process. And the way he uses the process of pain is essential. Three thoughts and we'll go home. Number one, I want you to notice what I've called the persistence of pain. Pain persists. You can't escape it. (laughs) All that will live godly in Christ Jesus, 1 Peter 4, 12, will suffer persecution. You're gonna go through it. 
It's inescapable. By the way, it's inevitable. <laughs> Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's inevitable. And by the way, it is indiscriminate. Matthew chapter 5, 45, it says it rains on the just and the unjust. Good people are gonna have trouble and bad people are gonna have trouble. Religious people will have trouble. Irreligious people will have trouble. Trouble's coming. <laughs> it is what it is. So pain is something that just persists. It is a reality that we're going to face. And he uses this word to describe painful experiences. He uses this word trials. Did you catch that? Trials. The trials which are to try. What's interesting about that word trial is when you get a biblical definition of it, it can be broken into two parts. A trial can on one hand be a test. A trial on the other hand can be a temptation. A trial on one, time, on one hand can be a positive, a trial on the other hand can be a negative. And so it is so important that we understand this because it gets to the second thing that I wanna talk about and that's the idea of my perception of my pain. How I perceive this. I've got a trial. In fact, this trial, he said, is coming. It's inevitable, inescapable, <laughs> indiscriminate. Everyone in the room, probably, if you're honest about it, have gone through or you may now be going through something that is painful. Maybe a relational, a physical, financial, a difficulty somewhere in your world. If we had time to survey the room, I promise you everyone in this room could talk about something difficult they've gone through or going through in their life right now. In fact, he uses this word, it's an interesting word. He talks about the various trials that are to try you. It's an interesting word in the Greek, uh, poikilos. Poikilos, various. It means, we get, the, well, we get the word polka dot from that word. <laughs> the various trials which are to try you. Uh, it, it, different shapes and sizes. You're gonna have big trials and little trials. Uh, you're gonna have middle-sized trials. You, you're gonna have things that will over, seem overwhelming and you're gonna have things that are rough, but you can cope and deal. So he's saying these things are coming, count it joy, they're coming, these trials are going to come into your life, but it's important how you perceive them. You see, if I, if I perceive this as God is in control and he knows what I need and he can deliver me from this, it's going to change my outlook. That's what a test is. Every teacher in the room knows the definition of a test. I'll give it to you. My definition would be simply this. A test is an evaluation to determine your readiness for promotion. Did you get that? <laughs> a test is evaluation to determine your readiness for promotion. Now, that's what God sends into my life, a trial that is a test. And the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that he's given us is, he won't put more on you than you can handle. I would tell you he will not put fifth grade work on a third grader. It's not that the third grader will eventually be able to handle the fifth grade level, but they're not there yet. So he won't put more than you than you can handle. And so the test, it's not for his benefit, by the way, because he's sovereign, he already knows. The purpose of the test is for my benefit. He'll send a test, hey Bill, how are you doing with this? I wanna do more and I wanna use you on a bigger level, but man, if you're struggling here at third grade, I don't think I'm gonna dump fifth grade work on you. And so life is a series of tests. And so the teacher will put the students through, and if 90% of the class fails, the teacher's gonna go back and reevaluate and say, oh my goodness, I need to spend a little more time here because in education, one thing builds on the next, one level on the next, and if they're not getting it here, the foundation is gonna be bad by the time they get up here. 
So you go back and teach fundamentals. Now, sometimes you have to take the class over. Teachers just love having you again next year. You're a little blessing, a little bright light. <laughs> like the guy that complained to his teacher, he said, you gave me an F, I don't think I deserved an F. She said, no, you didn't, but that's the lowest grade I could possibly give you. <laughs> I'm just suggesting to you that you'll fail some, some of these tests. I failed some tests. And when you fail the test, you go back through them. So some of the pain that we're dealing with this morning, if I could help monitor this a little bit, some of the pain that we're dealing with this morning is associated with the test. God is trying to evaluate you to get you to the next level. Now, when you think of this in the school context, the thing that tripped up the third grader, when the third grader gets to fifth grade, will look back at the third grade thing and say, I can't believe I stumbled over that. That seems so simple. But man, when they were there, Everything's relative. And when that third grader was in third grade, man, that, that, it's kind of like this, these young couples and you see them fall in love and somebody says, oh, it's just puppy love. Well, it may be puppy love, but let me tell you something, it's real to the puppy. <laughs> it's all relative. And I'm just saying, when, when you get to fifth grade, you may look back at what you struggled with at third grade and wonder why you struggled so much, but man, when you're in third grade, there's nothing bigger than what you're going through. For the third grader, fifth grade is the ceiling. But if the third grader will keep taking steps, eventually fifth grade becomes the floor. And now sixth grade, seventh grade's the ceiling. And you keep taking steps, and sooner or later that becomes the floor, you got a new ceiling. You just keep taking steps. Can I say some of us this morning, we're going through a progressive, a progressive program where God is moving us from level to level to level to level because he's got something better for us. It's a test. This is only a test. Second thing I'd have you think about the test is the other side of that, which is the temptation. Now the word temptation shows up uh, in the first part of James one, uh, or, or rather in the second part of James one about verses 13 through 18, you see the word trial used in context as a temptation. Now in the first part, the word trial is used in context of a test, it's something God sends. In verse 13, he talks about a trial in the sense of a temptation, that's something the enemy sends. What's the difference? A test evaluates your readiness for promotion. What does a temptation do? Listen, a temptation is a solicitation to get you to do anything that goes against God's word for your life or his will for your life. A solicitation to draw you into something that is not in your best interest. Listen, to draw you to someone who may not be in your best interest. I've told you before, sometimes the biggest decision you make is not the decision of trying to discern between good and evil. That's a no-brainer. Any of the children over in Met Kids could tell you the difference between good and evil. Here's the hard part. Not what is good and what is evil. The hard part is what is good as opposed to what is best. Who is good as opposed to who is best? That's where you need discernment. And so the devil is in the detail. He works all of that. And so he's pulling you at you constantly. So think about it like the little cartoon that I grew up watching where the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. It's good theology. I get a lot of theology from cartoons from time to time when I was a child. But you get this pull of the enemy to get you to do something that goes against God's purpose for your life. He's pulling at you constantly. What's the use? Why pray? It's not getting you anywhere. I go to church, man, you had so many other things going on in your life, it was so much better, you started trying to pursue God, and now it seems like the wheels are coming off. 
Can I tell you something I've learned about life? I don't think any of us ever get to heaven without walking through a whole lot of hell. Believe it or not, Winston Churchill is the one that was attributed to saying, not, not, not Atkins, the country singer, who said, when you're going through hell, keep on going. <laughs> don't quit. Because you're going to constantly having this, this, this solicitation to get you to throw in the towel and get you to, just, just, don't, just don't quit. Just don't give up and don't give in and don't give out. So if my perception is, on one hand, I'm being tested, while on the other hand, I'm being tempted, then I realize I'm in control of how I look at this. I can tell you personally, I look at what we're going through as a test. Now look at this as a test. I choose to believe what the apostle said was true, and that is this, God is too good to do wrong. He's too wise to make a mistake. I'll admit to you, I think I'm at a fifth grade level. <laughs> so I struggle a little bit here. I know he's trying to get me on up to a higher level and a higher grade. And so I wanna be faithful. I wanna pass the test where I, because I don't want him to say, oh, Bill, I had so much more for you, but you just wind your way out of it. <laughs> so I don't wanna do that. So when I'm weak or when I cry or when I struggle, I, I'm, I'm not quitting. I, I'm, this, there's, no, there's no quit in me. I'm not giving up, I'm not giving in, I'm not, it's just, I, I, I have no plans. And I'm just suggesting you, you, you've got to have that dogged determination. This is bulldog tenacity that you're just not going to quit. Third thing, you see the perseverance in the midst of pain. You remember the word patience I pointed out to you where he said these trials will bring about patience? You know what the word patience literally is? In a, again, a biblical context, get this, get this definition. It is the ability to endure under a difficult circumstance. It means the pain's still there. You've learned how to endure. That's patience. That's perseverance. You said I've learned a skill that I didn't have before this. I've said, you don't know how strong your faith is till it gets tested. So now that my faith has been tested and I'm going through what I'm going through and I know it won't get better, it is what it is. I'm learning how to cope. And in the midst of this journey and in the midst of this, God is teaching me perseverance. He's teaching me to endure under a difficult circumstance. Remember in school when you studied the little caterpillar that would go into the cocoon and emerge as the butterfly? I heard about, this is gonna, you'll love this one. I heard about the two little caterpillars and they were crawling along and they look up and they see this beautiful butterfly fluttering around and one caterpillar says to the other, I don't care what they say, they're never gonna get me up in one of those things. That's kind of funny if you think about it. But eventually the little caterpillar will go into the cocoon and then there'll come a time in this process called metamorphosis. It means to be transformed by light, phosos metamorphosis to transform by light. Through a process, this little, this little butterfly begins to struggle. It went in as a caterpillar and now it's gone through a metamorphosis where the inner nature is coming to the outside and this caterpillar is becoming who it was created to become, a butterfly. And so it's trying to fight to get itself out of the cocoon. Did you know if you help that butterfly, if you try to strip the cocoon away from the butterfly, you will weaken it. God designed the, strong, the, the, the smallest of creatures to be strengthened by their struggles. 
Boy, let that soak on you a minute. God designed the smallest of his creation to be strengthened by their struggles. I grew up around chickens and we had some of those. My grandparents had those. Some of you, uh, you're familiar with birds and how that, did you know there's a, there's a little part on that beak of the little bird or the little chicken that develops and, and they, call it, um, they call it an egg tooth. Have you ever heard that? It's called an egg tooth. It's a little hardening on the beak that happens when the little one is preparing to peck his way out of that egg. And so that little hard area on that little one's tooth is called an egg, an egg tooth, and it will begin when the time is right to peck and to crack and to try to emerge from the shell. Do you know what you'll never see a mama bird do? Help the baby in the process. Because there's something that God created the little ones to do that made them get stronger in their struggle. It is the fight to get out of where you are. It is the fight to get to the next level. It is the determination not to go. It's the, it's the struggle that makes you strong. And God knows that. He knows what we need. In fact, let me close with three things that I hope encourage you. Number one, never forget God is watching. He's not a distant deity. He's watching. You may be pecking on that shell this morning. You may be fighting the cocoon today. You may be struggling saying, where are you, God? Why don't you help me? I don't, I don't feel like I'm getting what I need from you. And God's looking back at you this morning saying, there is strength in your struggle. You can do this. He's cheering you on. You can do this. I said I wouldn't put more on you. You can handle. You can do that. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give out. You can do this. God is watching. Secondly, God is working. He's working. He's got a plan and a process. He didn't look just down from heaven and spot you one day and go, whoop, I only had that one. What am I going to do with that one? <laughs> You're not an accident. You're an incident. He had you on purpose because he has a purpose for you. There's a reason you're here. And part of getting you from where you are to where you need to be involves a struggle. But understand, in the midst of your struggle, God is working. Third thing, God is waiting. He's waiting. I, I said last week, sometimes the word we get from God is no, and that's a great test of your faith. But can I tell you, sometimes the word you get from God you ready? Not now. Not now. It's going to happen, just not yet. We walk out of here in a few moments now. You're not going to pitch your key or your fob to one of your kids and say, hey, drive us home. Let's see what happens. <laughs> the point is, you're not telling them no forever. You're just saying you're not ready. Your little feet can't touch those pedals. Your little mind hadn't developed enough to be able to handle the judgments you have to make as you drive. So it's, it, you, you'll get there. You're going to get there. And sometimes in our struggle, we look at God saying, we need the fob. And he's looking back saying, you can't touch the pedals. <laughs> he's not saying no. He's just saying, you just trust me. When it's time, I'll pitch you the keys and say, go get it. You're not there yet. So what do you do in the meantime? You just keep pulling at the cocoon, <laughs> you keep pecking on the shell, <laughs> you keep putting one foot in front of the other, and you keep trusting God because he's too good to do wrong 
He's too wise to make a mistake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It never returns void or empty. I pray for my friends and those watching who may be in a time, a season of pain. I pray this lesson from James will help us to be able to connect some dots, to perceive what you may be doing in our life, to trust you more. I pray for those who may never have received you as their savior. They may never have moved, as Kelsey talked about, from a religious experience into that relationship with you. Some of us have that coming out of Baptist and Church of Christ and, and Catholic and Assembly of God. We have it in our religious experiences and sometimes, Lord, we forget to see the value of moving from religion into the relationship with our Savior. And I pray for those today who want that, that you'd give them the courage to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and be a reality in me. I receive you today as my Savior. And finally, Lord, for those who just need someone to pray for them before they go home, they're carrying a heavy burden. Maybe they're walking with something that you never designed them to carry. I pray they'll come and let one of us here at the front spend a few moments to pray for them and encourage them. Bless, Father, I pray, protect us as we go. Make this a great, productive week, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in today with us. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us so that we can follow up with you this week by visiting metchurch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week.